Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 13, Genesis chapter 13, plus Ezekiel 36 and 37. This week is lesson 13. I can't already believe we've got 13 lessons in already. Now, you know, while Torah class is all about studying the first five books of the Bible, Torah, it also is prob probably the most profitable for us when we can understand the relevance it has for us in our day and age and apply it to our lives. And it's said by many preachers and teachers that we today are living in a very special time of the history of the world and that we're eyewitnesses to age-old Bible prophecies coming to pass. And you know what? They're right. But to put that into perspective, it's good to realize that not every generation has witnessed prophetic events occurring. So one would think that when a prophecy of God does come to fruition, God's people would get all excited about it. Yet, the church and most of the earth's Jewish population has, for the most part, greeted two of the most important events in all prophetic history. The rebirth of Israel as a nation, as a Jewish nation, and the return of the control of Jerusalem to the Jewish people with kind of a disinterested yawn. Now, I think that's primarily because we don't realize that fulfillments of prophecy don't happen every day. Okay. In fact, with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., for all practical purposes, the unfolding of biblically prophesied events went into hibernation for an extended period of time. For better than 18 centuries, there wasn't a single prophetic event that is outlined in the Bible that occurred. Oh, there was a lot going on in the world in preparation for that day God was going to once again start that prophetic clock ticking, counting down to the end of all things as we know them. But for almost 1900 years, God's people had nothing from which to gauge just where in Bible history they stood. Now, that's not the case, though, for us living today. But you know, as you look around, you'd think that nothing out of the ordinary was happening. Now, after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the next prophesied event, event that was to occur was the return of those who had just been dispersed and exiled from what we call the Roman dispersion or the Roman exile. Jewish people, believers and non-believers, kept their bags packed and waited expectantly for that return in, in the first few decades following the Roman destruction of Jerusalem when they were outlawed from living in the city. But it didn't happen. The Gentile church and the Messianic Jews of the second century AD thought certainly Christ was going to return at any moment Likewise, the traditional Jews thought the return to their homeland and rebuilding of their temple was imminent 
but it didn't happen. Those worshiping the God of Israel and living in the third century were getting pretty restless and worried about what was taking so long for God to call his people back to their holy land, but their worries weren't put to rest. In the fourth century, the thoroughly Gentilized now Church of Jesus Christ was still awaiting the return of Christ. And the Jews of every nation to which they had migrated wondered if maybe the time was finally near when they were going to be called to go back home. And they did it in the 5th century and the 6th and the 7th and the 8th, right on up to about the 17th century when Christianity took a very fateful turn. And it came to the conclusion that we must have been misreading all those prophecies about the return of Israel to their homeland. The church concluded that in fact Israel was not going to return. At least there wasn't going to be a Jewish Israel. And that the Israel the Bible spoke of, both the people and the land, were just symbolic. Symbolic of what? The Gentile church. The new mainstream beliefs that arose and which today dominate the Christian world began in the 17th century. And these beliefs centered around the newly held conviction that Israel had been replaced by the church. That Israel had been thoroughly and permanently rejected by Yahweh because they had rejected his son. That all the promises of the land, all the promises of salvation that the Hebrews had received through Abraham and Moses were taken from them and handed over to the Gentile church. That the church would now get all the blessings promised to Abraham, those promises we read about in the first few verses of chapter 12 of Genesis. Now Israel, on the other hand, was going to get all the curses that come from the disobedience to the laws of Moses. Let's fast forward now to the 20th century. Uh-oh, Houston, we got a problem. Because in 1948, Israel did return to the exact same spot from which they were exiled. The Jewish nation was reborn just as prophesied. And then in 1967, Jerusalem was returned to the control of the Jewish people just as predicted and therefore ordained by Jesus. And what's been the church's reaction to these staggering events? In general, nothing. The same replacement theological positions born from the lack of faith of those 17th century church leaders and those positions they took have become completely intertwined and embedded within modern church doctrine. And they are, to this day, still being taught in the overwhelming majority of churches worldwide. It's as though the return of Israel to claim the promises made to Abraham never happened. You know, we Christians have been taught from early childhood to express disappointment and shake our heads knowingly 
at those terrible Jews in Jesus' day who had the unimaginable privilege of witnessing the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, right, but then were blinded to it by their Jewish traditions. Okay, so blind that they encouraged the killing of the Son of God for claiming to be who he really was. Well, today, we of the church have witnessed that long-awaited day when Israel would be returned from their exile, reclaim their land inheritance, and be reborn as a nation. We watched it on television as the Israeli army defeated an alliance of five powerful Arab armies in a matter of six days. All right, and in 1967, reclaimed Jerusalem as their own holy city for the first time since 70 A.D. The prophecy has happened. The Jews are back. And for the most part, due to our Christian traditions, the church has been utterly blind to it. Now, interestingly, it was a little under 1,900 years from the time God made his promises to Abraham until Yeshua the Messiah arrived. And it was a little under 1,900 years from the day God kicked his people out of the land but promised he'd bring them back until the day came that they were called back to Israel. Maybe we ought to take notice, you think? Okay. Now, there are many nations scattered, rather many mentions scattered throughout the Bible of these amazing events. But for me, none has the impact of those words spoken by that really weird prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was one of those Jews taken from his home in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and exiled to Babylon when the Babylonian Empire conquered Judah in 597 BC. So let's detour just a bit for the purpose of connecting some dots between the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 13 and Ezekiel's prophetic utterances of Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37 and then have all that connected to the events of our time. And we're going to do that tonight, spend part of the evening, by reading the prophetic story of the final return of the Jewish people to their homeland. Okay? A return that after an 18th century hiatus of prophetic fulfillments marks the resumption of the countdown to Armageddon. So let's turn our Bibles to Ezekiel 36. I would like you to follow along with me. There's a lot of reading we're going to do here. It's worth it. Ezekiel 36. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 689. Ezekiel chapter 36. Now you, human being, God's talking to Ezekiel. Now you, human being, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. Say, mountains of Israel, hear the message from Adonai. Adonai Elohim says, the enemy is boasting over you. Ha! Even the ancient high places are ours now. 
Before I go any farther, I want you to imagine, as I, many of you have been there, to Israel, and I'm going to take the rest of you, okay? Um, imagine yourself over there, right now, right, listening, to, uh, listening to this, right? Therefore, prophesy and say that Adonai Elohim says, because they desolated you and swallowed you up from every side so that the other nations could take possession of you. And now people are gossiping about you and slandering you. Therefore, mountains of Israel, hear the message of Adonai Elohim. This is what Adonai Elohim says to the mountains and the hills, the streams and the valleys, the desolate wastes and the abandoned cities, now preyed on and derided by the other surrounding nations. Therefore, this is what Adonai Elohim says. In the heat of my jealousy, I speak against the other nations and all of Edom, since rejoicing with all their heart, they have irrigated my land to themselves as a possession with utter contempt, seized it like prey. Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, the hills, the streams, and the valleys, Adonai Elohim says this, I speak in my jealousy and fury because you have endured being shamed by the nations. Therefore, thus says Adonai Elohim, I have raised my hand and sworn that the nations surrounding you will bear their shame. But you, mountains of Israel, you will sprout your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel who will soon return. I'm here for you. I will turn toward you. Then you will be tilled and sown. And I will multiply your population, all the house of Israel, all of it. The cities will be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply both the human and animal populations. They will increase and be productive. And I will cause you to be inhabited as you were before. Indeed, I will do you more good than before. And you will know that I am Adonai. I will cause people to walk on you, my people Israel. They will possess you and you will be their inheritance. Never again will you make them childless. Adonai Elohim says, because they say to you, land, you devour people and make your nations childless. Therefore, you will no longer devour people. You will not make your nations childless anymore, says Adonai Elohim. I will not permit the nations to shame you or the peoples to reproach you any longer. And you will no more cause your nations to stumble, says Adonai Elohim. The word of Adonai came to me, human being. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their manner of life and their actions. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of Nidah. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them because of the blood they had shed in the land, because they defiled it with their idols. I scattered them among the nations and dispersed them throughout the countries. I judged them in keeping with their manner of life and actions. When they came to the nations they were going to, they profaned my holy name. So the people said of them, these are Adonized people who have been exiled from the land. But I'm concerned about my holy name, which the house of Israel is profaning among the nations where they've gone. Therefore, tell the house of Israel that Adonai Elohim says this. I'm not going to do this for your sake, house of Israel but for the sake of my holy name, which you have been profaning among the nations where you went. 
I will set apart my great name to be regarded as holy, since it's been profaned in the nations. You profaned it among them. The nations will know that I am Adonai, says Adonai Elohim, when before their eyes I am set apart through you to be regarded as holy. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you from all the countries, and return you to your own soil. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit inside of you. I will take that stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit inside you and cause you to live by my laws. Respect my rulings and obey them. You will live in the land I gave to your ancestors. You will be my people and I'll be your God. I will save you from all of your uncleanness. I will summon the grain and increase it and not send famine against you. I will multiply the yield of fruit from the trees and increase production in the fields so that you will never again suffer the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your actions that were not good. And you'll look at yourselves. You will loathe yourselves for your guilt and disgusting practices. Understand, says Adonai Elohim, that I'm not doing this for your sake. Instead, be ashamed and dismayed for your ways, house of Israel. Adonai Elohim says, when that day comes for me to cleanse you from all your guilt, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the ruins to be rebuilt. The land that was desolate will be tilled. Whereas formerly it lay desolate for all passing by to see. Then they will say, the land that used to be desolate has become like Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. And the cities formerly ruined, abandoned, and wasted have been fortified, and they're inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, Adonai, have rebuilt the ruins and replanted what was abandoned. I, Adonai, have spoken, and I will do it. Adonai Elohim says, in addition, I will let the house of Israel pray to me to do this for them, to increase their numbers like sheep, like flocks of sheep for sacrifices, like the flocks of sheep in Jerusalem at its designated times. In this degree will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they'll know that I am at an eye. Now on to Ezekiel 37. With the hand of Adonai upon me, Adonai carried me out by a spirit and set me down in the middle of the valley. And I was full of bones. He had me pass by all around them. There were so many bones lying in the valley and they were so dry. And he asked me, human being, can these bones live? And I answered, Adonai Elohim, only you know that. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones. Say to them, dry bones, hear what Adonai has to say. To these bones, Adonai says, I will make breath enter you, and you will live. I will attach ligaments to you, make flesh grow on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you. You will live, and you will know that I am Adonai. So I prophesied as ordered, and while I was prophesying, there was a noise a rattling sound 
It was the bones coming together. Each bone in its proper place. As I watched, ligaments grew on them. Flesh appeared, skin covered them, but there wasn't any breath in them. Next he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, human being. Say to the breath that Adonai Elohim says, come from the four winds, breath, and breathe on these slain so that they can live. So I prophesied as ordered, and the breath came into them, and they were alive. They stood up on their feet, a huge army. Then he said to me, human being, now let me stop for a moment, pay very close attention, because you've just heard an awful lot of confusing stuff. He's about to tell you, here's what it means. You ready? Then he said to me, verse 11, human being, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And they are saying, our bones have dried up because our hope is gone and we're completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them that Adonai Elohim says, my people, I will open your graves and make you get up out of your graves and I will bring you to the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Adonai when I have opened your graves and made you get up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit in you and you will be alive. Then I will place you in your own land and you will know that I, Adonai, have spoken and that I've done it. The word of Adonai came to me. You, human being, take a stick and write on it for Yehuda, for Judah, and those joined with him among the people of Israel. Next, take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel who's joined with him. Finally, bring them together into a single stick so that they become one in your hand. And when people ask you what all this means, tell them that Adonai Elohim says this, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, together with the tribes of Israel who are joined with him, and put them together with the stick of Judah and make them a single stick so that they become one in my hand. The sticks on which you were to write in your hand um, as they watch and then say to them that Adonai Elohim says, I will take the people of Israel from among the nations where they have gone and gather them from every side and bring them back to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king will be king for all of them. They will no longer be two nations and they will never again be divided into two kingdoms. They will never again defile themselves with their idols, their detestable things or any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the places where they've been living and sinning and I'll cleanse them so that they will be my people and I'll be their God. My servant David will be a king over them, and all of them will have one shepherd. They will live by my rulings and keep and observe my regulations. They will live in the land I gave to Jacob, my servant, when your ancestors lived. They will be there, they, their children and their grandchildren, forever. And David, my servant, will be their leader forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will give it to them 
increase their numbers and set my sanctuary among them forever. My home will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. The nations will know that I am Adonai who sets Israel apart as holy when my sanctuary is with them forever. Now this is a powerful, powerful story. And how I wish George Lucas or Steven Spielberg would make a movie out of what we just read. I mean, couldn't you do that? I mean, this is, this is an amazing story. Now, the first point I need to make is that this event being talked about in Ezekiel is not about the return of the Jews from Babylon. Okay? The study of these two chapters of Ezekiel is really a couple of weeks in itself. So let me just point out a few key points to understand in these verses. First and foremost is the important meaning of the phrase, the whole house of Israel. Also at times translated as both houses of Israel or even just all Israel. The words of Ezekiel were written over a span of 25-30 years. All right, beginning at around the time Babylon was conquered in Judah in 597 BC. The part we're looking at, chapters 36, 37, were written in the later years of his writings. Well, about 130 years earlier, before Ezekiel, you, you need to know that the Hebrews were a divided nation. Okay. A ten-tribe confederacy lived in the northern area of the Holy Lands, and a two-tribe group lived in the south. Okay. In fact, the northern area was a kingdom all of its own, separate and apart from the, from the southern kingdom, each area ruled by its own kings. Now let me be very clear. Okay. The United Kingdom of Israel, ruled over by David and then Solomon, became divided after Solomon died. Okay, by means of civil war. The northern area went by several names. We'll see them all in the Bible. Okay, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. In some documents, it even refers to it as the kingdom of Joseph. But for the most part, as was typical for that era, it was called after the name of the tribe, which was dominant in that region. And that was the tribe of Ephraim. Okay. From about 900 BC to the time of Ezekiel, 590 BC roughly, that northern region of the Holy Lands was called the Kingdom of Ephraim, a name most of us have not heard. Ephraim was a grandson of Jacob. And Ephraim was adopted away from his father, Joseph, by Jacob. Then Ephraim was given a great prophetic blessing. We're not going to go into that tonight, but just keep that in mind. The southern kingdom, however, is the one that we're most aware of. Okay? It was called Judah. Now, in Bible speak, the northern kingdom was called the house of Israel, or more accurately, the house of Ephraim. And the southern kingdom was called the house of Judah. Okay? These two houses 
the house of Ephraim and the house of Judah together make up all Israel or the whole house of Israel. Right? Those two houses together represent all the tribes of Israel. Okay? Now, the point is that today only one of the two houses of Israel has returned to the homeland. Judah. Okay? Judah is made up today of what we call the Jews. Right? The that other house of Israel, house of Ephraim, right, the one that's comprised of ten of the twelve tribes, has not yet taken part in the return to Israel. Now, that part of Ezekiel 37, we were talking about this two sticks deal. The one, he said, write a name, the name of Ephraim on one stick, write a name of Judah on the other, put them together in your hand. Right? This act of them being put back together is referring to that time when both houses of Israel, representing therefore all 12 tribes, will return to the Holy Lands and be, reuni be uh, reunited. But up to now, only one house, the house of Ju Judah, has returned. Okay. The common question is, well, isn't Ezekiel really about the return of the Hebrews from the Babylonian exile? No, because that exile was only the exile of Judah. The other house of Israel, Ephraim, had been conquered long ago by Assyria. The people deported and scattered throughout the 120 nations that formed the Assyrian Empire. That event had happened one and a half centuries earlier than Ezekiel, and basically they had ceased to exist as an identifiable people. In other words, the events spoken of in Ezekiel 36 and 37 were not about the return from Babylon, but were about an event that is really yet to happen in its full fullness. Now, in a three-part evening class I'm going to do sometime in the near future, we're going to get very deeply into this subject. But the point is, the return of Ephraim, I, hear me on this, has begun to happen. Barely three months ago, in March of this year, 2005, the Israeli government has officially sanctioned the return to the Holy Lands of people who say they are not Jews, but they are Israel. Okay? That is, these people seeking to migrate to Israel are some of those long-lost so-called ten lost tribes of Israel, the second house of Israel, Ephraim. Once more, Jews are only of the tribe or kingdom of Judah, okay, which basically represents two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Okay. Ephraim represents and is, consists of the other ten tribes, long assumed to be lost and unidentifiable, and they're not Jews, because they're not from Judah, but they're Israelites. So the events that we just read about in Ezekiel 36 and 37 are right now in process. 
Now that's scary, isn't it? All right. It's happening now, and the second part of that began this year. Amazing. Hey. Now today, we are in the throes of a rather severe argument over that land that the Jews have returned to and in which Ephraim is just now starting to come. And that argument is going to someday throw the world into a final war, which is where the following chapters of Ezekiel would take us if we went all the way through to the end. Now, some may want to argue as to the precise boundaries of the land God gave to Abraham for all time. But hear me. At the very least... It included every square inch of the land the Palestinians now claim as theirs. Every square inch. Okay. You see, the area that Abraham stood at the moment God made him that promise is right in the heart of what we today commonly call the West Bank or in the most ridiculous possible terms, occupied territory. You bet it is. It's occupied by Palestinians and shouldn't be. Now, I can't tell you the downright sense of dread I have for America every time I hear our president or our secretary of state, which are decent and well-intentioned people, in my opinion, talk about severing the West Bank from the possession of Israel through tremendous political pressure. And giving that land to the Palestinians as their own sovereign nation, that, of course, is in the hope of peace. Now, we haven't even have a large coalition of churches demanding the very same thing out of a doctrine of tolerance and fairness and mercy for the Arabs and the Palestinians. This is precisely the land God gave to Abraham and set aside for his descendants for all time. This is why I wanted to read it to you in Ezekiel as well, okay, hundreds of years after Abraham. And God has warned, though, uh, warned that those who go against his descendants, those that curse Abraham, he will come against and judge. And what did we hear in Ezekiel? We, we just read. He said, I'm going to come against you, those of you that laugh and say, ha, we've got the high ground now. All right. Well, every indication biblically is that, in, is that indeed somebody is going to force upon Israel the decision to surrender a portion of that land that is at the center of the Abrahamic covenant. And at the moment, sadly, it appears it's going to be the United States government who forces it in order to attain President Bush's roadmap to peace. And the peace that the world longs for in our time is going to occur for a very short time. Okay, but the problem is, peace with the world means war with God. Okay, you see, God's pattern of dividing and electing and separating has never ended. And we're living today in one of those defining and dividing moments of God. Okay, and part of that dividing and separating process God is using is based around each of our answers to a single question. 
where do you stand on Israel? And like it or not, we've got to choose one side or the other. We can choose to obey God and honor his covenants and have peace with him, or we can stand with the world. Now, standing with Israel is standing with God. Not standing with Israel is standing with the world against God. Let's take a few minutes. I want to get just a little bit back into chapter 13. All right, of, of, uh, we'll go about five more minutes here. Chapter 13 of Genesis. I'm going to uh, read the last four verses, five I guess, from 14 to 18 of Genesis 13. Adonai said to Avram, after Lot had moved away from him, Look all around you from where you are, to the north, to the south, to the east and to the west. All the land you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. And I'll make your descendants as numerous as the specks of dust on the earth, so that if a person can count the specks of dust on the earth, then your descendants can be counted. Get up and walk through the length and breadth of that land because I will give it to you. Avram moved his tent and came to live by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. Hebron. Okay. There he built an altar to Adonai. Okay, now that I've demonstrated to you that the words of these verses are still in effect, Okay, and will be until the end of all things. I hope you can gather in the importance of them. Okay, the land God showed to Abraham is to be unconditionally Israel's forever. Now, exactly where was Abraham when he was to look around in every compass direction and all that he saw was to belong to his descendants? The Genesis Apoc Apocryphon, all right, which is a pseudo-epigraphic piece of literature that dates back a couple thousand years, places him at a place called Ramat Hazor, which is just a little bit north of Bethel. And it's about five miles north of it. Now, Ramat means a high place. Okay, Ramat Hazor. All right, a high place, Hazor. All right, and it's the highest spot in central Israel with an altitude of almost 3,300 feet. Okay? And from that spot even today, even with all the dust in the air and everything, you can still see the Mediterranean Sea to the, to the west, and to the east you can see over the Jordan into what is modern-day Kingdom of Jordan. Okay? Now verse 17 says that Abram was to walk the length and breadth of the land because God gave it to him. Now, what exactly does that mean? I mean, was he literally to stop what he was doing and go visit every area of the land? Was that the idea? Or was this just symbolic of something? Or was it a Hebrew idiom we don't understand? Or what? Well, the Targum Jonathan, which was an early Hebrew commentary, says that what was happening was that Abraham was doing 
Kazakha. Kazakha. C-H-A-Z-A-K-A-H. Kazakha was a widespread legal custom in, in, in that era and practiced well before and used throughout the various tribes and peoples of the Middle East. It was known by the Egyptians as well as the Hittites and attested to in their ancient documents. And the concept was that when a piece of property was acquired, the new owner had to walk the perimeter of the entire property, which was symbolic of marking his territory, if you would. Okay, Not until the new owner had done this was the transfer of the land complete. Okay, Some cultures even required the king or the ruler to walk the perimeter of his kingdom from time to time to reestablish his sovereignty over that territory. Now, why would God make Abraham do this? For Abraham's sake. Okay? And for the sake of the many who likely asks, why are you doing Kazaka? Okay? I have no doubt that Abraham didn't make too many friends as a result of this procedure. I mean, because within the outline of the territory he marked, all right, were many already established kingdoms and city-states, and I suspect they weren't too pleased by this foreigner's symbolic declaration, which they fully understood, of his walking around their land and declaring ownership of it. That's what was going on. Okay, But there's another reason as well. We're going to see all throughout the Torah and the remainder of the Old Testament and the entire Bible in general that where man-made governmental systems exist, God tends to allow the people involved to use the laws and ordinances and customs of their system when transactions between God and men occur. Okay? Abraham would have been completely familiar and comfortable with the idea of Yahweh telling him to go and walk the land because that's how things were done in that day. In fact, it probably would have been pretty disquieting and left a lot of doubt in Abraham's mind if, he, if God had not ordered him to do it. Okay? I mean, it would be as though we went in to buy a car, we filled out all the paperwork, we laid a check on the table, and the dealer says, no problem, I'm not going to sign anything and you don't have to either. I mean, that would be pretty uncomfortable. Right? But mainly because it's, a, it's not customary. It's not how we do things. Okay. Signing the paperwork finishes the process of transferring the ownership of that car from the dealer to you. Okay. Same thing here with Abraham. By legal custom of that day, he had to walk the perimeter of the land for it to legally be transferred to him and therefore both parties feeling full closure on the transaction. Well, the chapter ends with Abraham moving to Hebron and building an altar there. Now, building an altar was also customary because it declared one god or another's authority over that place or that territory. I think it's a good place to end tonight. We'll start with chapter 14 next week.